Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Gabby Beans. Gabby is a member and lead producer for the New York-based aid network Home is a Human Right. She is also an actor, writer, and filmmaker who has been recently featured in TV shows like Succession, House of Cards, and Blue Bloods. Today, we'll dive into topics including mutual aid networks, tactics for helping house the unhoused, and better ways to think about those living on our streets. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Gabby Beans. I'm here today with Gabby Beans. Welcome, Gabby. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you, Gavin. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about um, you know trying to address uh, uh, issues around homelessness and uh, you know affordable housing today. So uh, I'd love maybe if you can just get us started off by um, telling us kind of how you got involved in that uh, cause area and maybe just a little bit about the project that you're involved in there. Absolutely. So. The group that I help run is called Home is a Human Right, and we are based in New York City. Um, We used to be essentially the housing group of a larger mutual aid network called Mutual Aid NYC. But in recent months, we've sort of been working more autonomously, sharing resources with Mutual Aid NYC, but sort of also doing our own work. And uh, the aim of the project is pretty simple. We are a group of housed and unhoused folks who are working together to leverage resources, um, time, and basically effort to try and secure housing for people who don't have it, um, help ease the transition between being unhoused to being stably housed for folks that are going through that transition, offer resources, and any other sort of community-based approaches to dealing with housing in New York that we can sort of uh, come together around as a a group. Uh, I got involved with Home is a Human Right kind of in this really funny, uh, Sarah, like just random way, quite frankly, um, in 2020. So by profession, like my day job, I'm an actor, um, mm-hmm. I'm a filmmaker, and um, I just kind of do stuff in that area. And during 2020, obviously, a lot of industries shut down, including the entertainment industry. And even in past years, I had wanted to volunteer or be part of some sort of like community service um, mm-hmm. effort. And I had done it sort of on and off, like sporadically, um, sort of these sort of separate projects. I didn't really find a group that I uh, really sort of jived with. But in 2020, when we were witnessing the real breakdown of social welfare infrastructure in the face of massive need, uh, not only on the on the sort of healthcare front of people not you know having to deal with this the virus, but also people not being able to access basic necessities like not being able to get food readily, or not being able to go to the grocery store, or having yeah. trouble getting from place to place. And when I saw these mutual aid networks popping up, I felt really energized when I saw what people were doing, and that's how I got involved in this group i kind of on a whim signed up for the mutual aid nyc volunteer database and they were like well 
there's a project for you, we'll contact you. And Kayla, who's one of the most instrumental members of our current project, reached out to me and was like, hey, we're doing this media project. You work in media, like, do you want to get involved? And that was in November of 2020. So since then, I've uh, been working with the group and learning a lot about housing and also just about uh, mutual aid as well. Well, that's great. Uh, maybe you can start off by uh, helping to kind of define that term, uh, mutual aid or mutual aid networks. Uh, maybe what sets that apart from other ways of helping and, and, and sort of what that's about. Absolutely. So, you know, mutual aid is not a new thing. Uh, I just want to be very clear about that because it's come to prominence in the sort of cultural awareness in a different way uh, mm -hmm. because of the demands of the pandemic. Uh, but mutual aid is, ex has existed in marginalized communities and just general in communities for as long as communities have existed. And, and it's at its most basic level, mutual aid is the idea that we are all responsible for um, taking care of the needs of our community and that we have each other's back. And it's this idea that, um, you know, if, if some, if one member of the community is, is in need, that is a present concern for every member of the community and everyone can. And another thing about mutual aid that I really, really enjoy is that there's an idea that, um, everyone can contribute, that everyone has value mm. to offer to everyone else and that there's not some sort of um, like wall or like gatekeeping that you can that you can sort of witness in other sort of charity or NGO uh, spheres. Like th it's the idea that everyone has something to contribute and that if we all contribute what we can, we can address the material needs in our, of our community in a really effective way. But to get a little bit more um, specific around it, the term mm -hmm. actually came from this guy, Peter Kropotkin, and he was an anarchist and a, I think sort of an annual animal behaviorist. And he went into the Siberian wilderness to observe animal behavior. And he was expecting to see a lot of competition, sort of the sort of crabs in the, in the, in the barrel vibes. But what he saw was that there was a remarkable amount, remarkable amount of cooperation between animal systems um, to, uh, Oh, yes. I'm just really uh, Producer Nick just dropped a uh, excellent bio in the chat here. So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, should I read that or? <laughs> we can. Yeah. Uh, Russian anarchist, socialist, revolutionary economist, sociologist, historian, zoologist, and the list goes on. So, this seems like a very uh, colorful character here. Yeah. Yeah. But so he's basically the person who is responsible for terming you know, coining the term mutual aid. Um, and um, that I think he, he published a book in 1902. But yeah, he, he published this book in 1902 about mutual aid between animal communities. And I think that's where the term really caught hold. But then there are other historical examples, like the main one that comes to mind is the um, free breakfast program that the Black Panther Party started in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so these are so this is not a new thing. It's a way of community building. It's a way of addressing needs that's existed for a very very long time. And so, if we're kind of drilling down, you know, just into more specifics, so uh, does that mean like is everybody a volunteer in these organizations, or you know, kind of how how loosely are they held, or how much structure is there? Absolutely. So that's that's one of the great things about mutual aid is that it is it can be non hierarchical and it can be as um, sort of 
diffuse and nebulous and um, non-structured as you want it to be. Because the thing about the mutual aid networks that I'm aware of in New York is most are operating without government um, oversight and are also operating without the oversight of like a supervisory NGO or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and part of mutual aid is that we are volunteers. Uh, I think there's starting to be some discussions around compensation and this and that, but in the circles that I run in and our group, certainly it's basically there are organizers and there are volunteers and the organizers are just people there who are not really the leaders of the group, but they're people who have like maybe more time and energy to contribute to the project. So they might make some macro level decisions about, how what projects should be done or how to interface with mem uh, sort of member um, groups or uh, you know sure. other NGOs that we might interface with or they might organize meetings and stuff but it's not like a charity or an NGO where there's like a board of directors and there's like a you know a boss because it's not mm. a job it's just a group of volunteers coming together under you know a specific uh, service area sure but on another thing I, I want to be clear, because I don't think I fully like answered your question about mm -hmm. the difference between mutual aid and other forms of aid. Mm -hmm. um, mutual aid is solidarity based. Mm. So it means that there's not a, a distinction that's made between the volunteer and the person who's receiving and the recipient of the aid. Right. Like there's an awareness that we are all part of the same community. And just because I might be offering aid or resources or energy or what have you to you on this day, it's expected and thought that, you know, when I have my day, when I need help, you'll be there to help me. Yeah. So that's 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 a big difference to charity because charity is kind of like a one sided relationship where sure. aid is being offered, maybe monetary resources are being offered to address a certain issue, but usually we're addressing like the symptoms of the issue and not necessarily the um, foundations of the issue itself. Whereas mutual aid tries to strengthen community and form these really, really strong community bonds of trust so that we can actually try to address why, you know, these things are happening. So for in our case, like housing, like we're not just going to we're like our group is our our aim is not to like build houses or to um you know necessarily like go occupy buildings and like <laughs> um ha like find places for people to live we're there to try and stay help stabilize people and offer them whatever resources they need at whatever journey part of the journey they are to acquire housing or to keep housing in order to like create more of a a steady foundation for them to build upward from. Next and I would also like to say that um, another big difference between charity and mutual aid is like, we have no, we really have no horse in the race of the problem continuing. But mm -hmm. with NGOs and charities, like one thing that I, that one of our sort of collaborators said once that really stuck with me is just because a or, an, an organization is nonprofit, it doesn't mean that they don't have economic incentives at play in sure. how they're working. They still have a board of directors. They still have people who have economic stakes. They have they have economic stakeholders. Like we don't have any economic stakeholders, so we can sort of respond 
with a level of integrity that's a little bit different. And also like an NGO has a, has a paid staff that it needs to be able to compensate. And right. like any business, the aim of the business cannot be to shrink and disappear. And so one of the problems we encounter in the NGO space and in the charity space is that unfortunately, a lot of these organizations have a vested interest in whatever problem that they're addressing continuing. Because if it doesn't continue, there won't be people to serve. And if they're not people to serve, then there's no reason for them to exist. And that's why I'm really excited by an energized community-based approaches, because obviously from a community level, there is nothing to be gained from people being unhoused. There's nothing to be gained from people being precariously housed. Our community flourishes when everyone has a place to call home and to be safe and to be stable and to feel secure. So I, that's just another um, little nuance I wanted to bring up. Yeah, here, here. Well, and I find it interesting because I think this uh, term or motion has been coming to prominence in a few different areas. And it's funny because the two places I've heard it is kind of in more you know left-leaning circles like this and also in kind of the further right-wing circles of the like preppers. And the, the preppers, you know, there used to be this kind of like a lone wolf thing, you know, I'm just going to survive with me and my family. But as people are starting to get more realistic about it, they're, they're realizing that you really do need a, um, a community there uh, to help you uh, when times are tough. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, amongst all the sort of benefits that you've talked about, uh, I'm curious if we can talk just a little bit about what that means for kind of, you know, building that neighborhood cohesion. Um, uh, you were saying that sometimes, you know, not everybody who's involved is kind of, you know, seeing things exactly identically. I think you've talked about maybe like different um, kind of uh, Latinx uh, populations and stuff like that. Um, what has that been like kind of, you know, just working more closely with neighbors kind of regardless of who they are? Absolutely. I mean, I think that part of the the part of the thing that I find most beautiful and grand about mutual aid is that it kind of feels like an immune response to neoliberal society. And I'll, mm. and I'll, and I'll say what I mean by that more specifically. Sure. Um, yeah. In a neoliberal society, there's a lot of atomization that happens where people feel very sort of encapsulated in their very sort of discrete areas of existence, whether that be like, the, you know, when you're in your apartment, that's your home. And you might not necessarily think of the greater neighborhood as your home, but, uh, but you, but that space is your home. And then you move from that space to where you work. And there's not a lot of um, cohesion or blending between you and the sort of spaces you occupy and then like a larger community. And I think that why mutual aid has proliferated on both sides of the political spectrum is because we're recognizing the really uh, you know, that you cannot ignore that we're interconnected and you can't ignore that we, that, that all of us sort of affect very profoundly the lives of the folks around us. And I think we saw that in stark relief during COVID, you know, like right. having to think more communally mindedly and like having to uh, make decisions as a group and disclose health information. And, and these are all sort of movements that ask us to think of ourselves not only as individuals but also as individuals that make up that comprise communities that we are all sort of responsible for the maintenance of so 
when we're doing mutual aid, we really don't consider the political leanings of the people that we are, uh, you know, in collaboration with or who we hope to bring benefit to. Um, when I mentioned the um, Latinx communities that are in my neighborhood, so I live in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and it's a primarily uh, sort of Central and South American Latinx folks and some black folks and some white folks. Um, obviously, there are other people of other races, but those are the primary sure. groups that are represented. And, you know, I, I was a poll worker for the 2020 election. And hmm. obviously, you know, like you have to be you know, nonpartisan in that space. And sometimes you have to help, you know, like direct people to certain things. And some folks are very, very vocal about who they're excited to vote about. And that was a really eye-opening experience to see, you know, especially among uh, more conservative Latinx folks, how, you know, really, really widespread support of Trump. And so we've encountered that also in our mutual aid work, but it's really not relevant, you know, mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. uh, the political point of view of members of the community doesn't really factor into our understanding of or actions around like helping provide for these material needs. And in fact, one thing I've really enjoyed about doing mutual aid is that it feels kind of apolitical in some ways. Yeah. I mean, like, the, yeah, like we're it's, not it's rare really, to find those spaces sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's super rare during this day and age. Like mm. it, it's, it, you know, I will say um, most of the people that are, I would say pretty much all of the people who are part of our group are definitely more left-leaning politically. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, a left-leaning political ideal ideology perhaps lends itself more to this collectivist point of view, um, social, you know, how, how your, how your understanding of social responsibility manifests, like how that manifests probably is going to manifest like in the form of mutual aid, if you're more left leaning, but I'm not surprised to hear that these, these currents are moving at either side of the spectrum. Cause really what it is, is like people crying out for community and people crying out for um, ways to be in community with each other. That is, that is making up for the, massive gaps that we know like that we can see obviously in how our government is able to provide for people's needs especially when we have something that's so um you know like disruptive as covid yeah totally and i do think you can definitely find kind of uh, uh libertarian justification for um you know these sorts of voluntary networks as well of course so, of course yeah um, well, that's great. So, um, you know, and I remember you, you talking just a little bit about like, um, you know, the relationships that you build there, right? As you were saying, it's not really quite as much of a kind of service provider and a service taker or acceptor or whatever, mm -hmm. right? You're saying you kind of have people in your phone book, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another thing that I just have found it to be really beautiful is that this work that we're doing is really about relationship building. And not in a, you know, transactional way and not in a um, sort of superficial way, because the thing I've learned from Kayla and from Keto, who are some of the sort of uh, more experienced people in the group, um, has been that you really have to operate like one of the one of the tenets that we kind of work by is that we move at the speed of trust. And what mm. that means is that one, 
that we're always making decisions based on information and guidance from people who have lived experience of what we're trying to work around. And two, it means that we only act in a way that feels really, really good for the leaders and the advocates that we know who have experience in this space. So it means that you have to like actually get personal. Like we, you know, I, many of the folks that, um, that we've worked with more extensively, I definitely consider friends. Like we will call, like we talk to each other on the phone. Like we collaborate on create creative projects together. You know, nice. like one person who comes to mind is um, Marcus Moore, who is who until till recently was unhoused and now is stably housed and has been a huge advocate with Picture the Homeless, which is an incredible group, which was the first um, homeless run and homeless led advocacy group to help address housing for, for mm. folks that don't have it. He's been a board member on that group for a long time. He's a homesteader in New York, a poet, a documentarian. And, you know, after he, he was like one of the first speakers on our listening series when we had sort of a podcast going with Home as a Human Right. And then later, nice. you know, I did I, I made a film last summer and he was in it. And it's like, that's how mutual aid kind of works as a, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you build a personal relationship with someone and it's not just about like, okay, like I'm here, I have resources and time, I'm going to solve your problem. And then that's it. Like I did my job. It's like, no, like let, we're friends. We're part of a community We're we're linked, you know, and, and, yes. that, and those relationships are very real and important. That's great. And I could, you know, I, I, you know, it's hard to put myself fully in that, but you know, I, I imagine if I'm trying to get back up on my feet there too, feeling like I can bring something back, uh, is going to help a lot, right? We feel a lot of our sense of worth comes from what we can do to help others. <laughs> and so it's nice for that to be bi-directional. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Um, well, you know, I um, I do love trying to ask this sometimes because I know it's not it's not always Sunshine or Rose is doing these things. Um, what's one thing that's kind of frustrating about uh, kind of the mutual aid approach or something I, that you've encountered? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the most frustrating thing for me is that we are behold like we are not like like I said one of the beautiful things about our group is that there's no government oversight, there's no NGO oversight. Our only oversight is from partner organizations who are working with directly affected communities and members of those directly affected communities who are, we are you know, in collaboration with who offer guidance about what they need and what they want. But that comes at the opportunity cost of us still at a larger level being beholden to the government, being beholden to the shelter system, being beholden mm. to certain NGOs that still hold a lot of power and sway over how um, things are done. And, you know, quite frankly, the, one of the most difficult things is you do form relationships with people. And then when you, especially with housing in New York and, and, and homelessness and the kind of things that people have to go through, it's yeah. like you, you're, fr you know, uh, for instance, um, last summer, there was a lot of tension in the city because folks who had been street homeless or folks who had been in the shelter system during the height of the pandemic and during the lockdowns were rehomed into hotel rooms to help, you know, stop the spread of the virus and to protect the health of those who didn't have homes. Um, because obviously in congregate shelters, you're normally in a room with between eight and like 50 people. 
And that's wow. not yeah. really a great <laughs> scenario during a pandemic. So course, everyone yeah. was moved to hotel rooms and um, FEMA had offered to pay for it through September of last year. And we saw a lot of the folks that we work with and the, a lot of people we're aware of have stability that they have not known for years, simply mm. from just having a place with maybe one other roommate, maybe it was a solo room, having their own bathroom, having a way to cook meals for themselves, and having that autonomy and that sense of you know pride that you get from having a safe, comfortable place to lay your head. And yeah. then in the summer, because of course, shelters like the other sort of um, service providers I mentioned previously are also a for-profit industry, like they want to rush ev- in the midst of delta surging they want to rush everyone back into the congregate shelters and a lot and and a lot of folks who were in the hotels were really standing up and saying no there is no reason for them to do this to us we are mm. not going to be moved back to congregate shelter during another wave of this pandemic and when the, the money is present for us to be able to stay where we are unfortunately a lot of people fought and there were a lot of great um, gains made. Like there was um, folks who were able to get uh, placed into housing because of certain health concerns or disabilities. And there was a lot of media coverage around it, which was great. But at the end of the day, a lot of people got sent back to shelter. And that's one of the moments when you're working, you know, in this space, that's kind of disheartening because you see that there is so much there are so many better options than what they're what we're doing currently and then what ends up happening is the status quo is maintained and your friends are the ones who are facing the brunt of the harm from those decisions so that's 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 one of the more difficult aspects of this kind of work that's tough yeah just kind of being firsthand uh between all these uh, players that that aren't really helping and kind of making mm-hmm. that difficult to navigate. Yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, another thing I, I can say about this, because you mentioned something earlier about when you're um, when you're trying to stabilize, it can be really useful to um, to feel as though you can be of service as well. And I'd right. like and, and I just want to speak on that because I think that that's such a true point. And I think that that's one cool thing that mutual aid does is that it's, you know, when you look at the language around service providers in shelters, for instance, um, or the way that folks are treated in shelter, mm-hmm. there is this weird thing that happens where folks are both, they're shamed for being in shelter, but then they're also kind of cut off from the resources that are needed in order for them to be able to get out of the cycle of being unhoused and going into shelter and so on and so forth. So with mutual aid, like there's, this is a really good example of what you were talking about, Gavin. Uh We have this project called moving support and, um, and basically what moving support does is when someone, so say like, Someone in New York, they've ha- they have a voucher for subsidized housing. And what a voucher basically means is that the government agrees to pay for a certain amount of rent, and then the individual is responsible for paying the other amount of rent. So that's how a lot of people are getting housing um, who haven't had it before. And so a lot of times when someone's moving from shelter or they're moving from being street homeless even or couch surfing, they are not going to be moving into the apartment with a lot of 
stuff. Like they're not going to have the necessaries to be comfortable in the apartment. Right. Um, like, you know, like they might even not, they, they might not have a bed. They might not have pots and pans. And when you're stabilizing and you're still maybe looking for a job or trying to secure more regular work or whatever, it can be kind of a big stress to try and source everything you need to have a comfortable, comfortable apartment. So what moving support does is those, the folks on that team, go through all of the like free groups on Facebook stuff. Like there's a lot of um, like free stuff groups from different neighborhoods in Brooklyn where people will just like, totally. if they're moving or whatever, they'll say, Hey, I've got a couch or I've got a coffee table or I got a rug or I got a fan or whatever. And they're just trying to get rid of it. So they'll go through those groups and find really great stuff and um, ask the individual who's moving into their new apartment. Hey, like, what do you need for your apartment for you to be comfortable? And then they'll provide, you know, free of cost, like whatever it is that they need. And so we did this with um, Marcus, who I mentioned before, like he was moving into his apartment after like years and years of being sort of in between housing. And he helped on the next move. Like the Mm -hmm. next time we were helping with someone, he was like, like the whole time when we were moving him, he was like, I cannot wait to do this for someone else. I cannot wait to help like move someone else in because this is so awesome. And that's what happens. Like a lot of folks who get moved and like get help from moving support or part of that process, they end up being future movers. And (laughs) it's like, that's, that's, it's just really beautiful to see that, that sort of the cycle of energy moving in that way that where it's not just this unidirectional like I'm going to provide for your need and you should be happy and like move on it's like no we are all sort of part of this we're all in this together vibes (laughs) I appreciate that yeah and that kind of building that positive feedback loop of involvement that's cool Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I I think it's it often goes underappreciated just how um, you know right because you know someone could say yeah it's you know they could totally pull it up themselves but when you're going through something hard and, you know, I can't even imagine something like that, but, you know, just the smallest kind of help with logistics or operations or just organizing everything that needs to be done, uh, I'm sure can go a long way. So, um, you would be surprised how much someone changes and how Mm. much, how profound it is. Like, it's really difficult. This is something I'll say. It is really, really difficult as a stably housed person to understand the experience of not having housing. Mm -hmm. And so for stably homed people, because they've never had to deal with that level of stress, uncertainty and chaos in their lives, it's very easy to look at someone in that scenario if you have no context around it and think or say, you know, this person, like, why can't this person get it together? Right. But the thing that everyone, the the thing that folks miss is that homelessness is a created issue. Homelessness is a symptom of income inequality, of really, really unfair housing structures in really, in, in an expensive city, you know, specifically New York. It's a function of the carceral system. It's mm-hmm. a function of um, the healthcare system, especially when it comes to mental health and substance abuse. This is not like like homelessness is just the symptom. And so I think that another thing that's really beautiful about mutual aid is that it really like acknowledges that idea that there before the grace of God go I. I mean, not to get religious yeah. with it, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. that idea that like, you know, for instance, we were out interviewing folks who were 
pro protesting the move from hotels to shelters, which I spoke about briefly earlier. Yep. And one of the women that um, my teammate and the other person who was filming it spoke to, she was talking about how two years prior, if you had asked her what a homeless person looked like, she would have described a, you know, what the, the, the typical image of a street homeless person. Mm -hmm. She was homeless. And she was like, I was a, I am a pharmacist. I got hurt. I had, I fell upon hard times and I am now homeless. And many people do not appreciate the level of precarity that they may be operating under yeah. if they're living from paycheck to paycheck or if their savings aren't right. So like people, get, like it's not, there, there's this a lot of stigma around unhoused people as being all insane or all addicted to drugs or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is there, there is no one look, there is no one group, there is no, um, specific identity that's tied to this issue. It is an mm -hmm. issue that is really because of the failures of our system to provide for the basic needs of, of, of all citizens. And, mm. um, and so I just think that that's important to mention. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think when it comes down to, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes in that way, I think that it uh, helps to build a little bit more understanding about what, like, this isn't always the most intuitive issue, but build a little bit more intuition around um, uh, kind of the dynamics of play, right? Because mm -hmm. you have uh, like the interplay between, you know, being unhoused and uh, like substance abuse, for example. And like, yes, if you addressed either one of those, it would probably affect the other. Uh, but I think it builds a lot of empathy for me. You know, if I was in such a shitty situation, I'm sure I'd be reaching for a beer, you know, like it's, 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 it's hard to imagine not having the symptoms of all of the substance abuse issues and stuff like that, you know, given such a stressful environment, uh, which, which makes me reflect on, I believe like, uh, Utah, I think did some useful projects on doing kind of housing first policy. Uh, and just making sure that people got housing without worrying about any of those other issues. Um, I, did, have you seen that stuff at all? No, I haven't. That sounds really interesting, but it makes complete sense, right? Because um, when, you know, I've heard a lot of accounts from folks we work with where they are at, like they, and you know, they might not even have a, a, you know, a drug abuse complexity or a mental health mm -hmm. complexity. They're just a person who has fallen under these circumstances and is working really, really hard and diligently to try and change their situation. And it is so difficult on a purely logistical level because of the level of bureaucracy in the New York City, like housing space mm -hmm. to just eat, to, to, to just get to a certain point where you can get a voucher or you can get placed in supportive housing. Like everyone I've talked to has said that there's that a, a thing that that's really difficult for them is like caseworker turnover because it is so hard to work in this space and the shelters are such a like really, really dismal places. Caseworkers drop like flies. People leave the, in, people leave, people quit, people get placed elsewhere. So even if you're like someone, let's say that you're someone who's in shelter currently and you're working with a caseworker, you might be looking at five, six, 
seven different caseworkers over the course of a year. And so every single time you get a new caseworker, you're trying to explain your situation again. You're having to organize a bunch of documents again, which, by the way, are really, really difficult to organize without an address, (laughs) without a place to necessarily send those documents. You know what I mean? So it's understandable that people who don't have context around what folks are actually up against for them to maybe not have the most compassionate view. But I think that what what mutual aid does is without this, like, you don't have to like, I didn't go to school for this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm an artist. Like, I've learned all of this just by talking to people, just by listening to what people are going through. And just on that relationship level, you, you start to understand the real, like, what it's like to live this way. And I think that if anyone really took the time to hear these accounts and and hear these stories, I think it would be hard for them to not want to be part of this kind of work. I think it would be hard for them to not have compassion, a lot of compassion for folks who are currently trying to get housing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And Nick just dropped uh, a couple of stats. So it looks like, uh, yeah, in Utah, they reduced the chronic homelessness population by 91% over about a decade. Wow. Uh, And yeah, it was interesting. They basically finally managed to convince, uh, (laughs) make a conservative case uh, for the fact that it actually would cost the state less money to just house people than than sort of pay for other services. And so they were able to make that case (laughs) and get it pushed through. And I think that was the uh, the, the story there. Um, yeah, and if and, and if New York is anything like Utah, I mean, it's it's I mean it it isn't in a lot of ways, but in terms of like the cost to the government, I mean, this is another problem that we see is that uh, you know New York State spends thirty five hundred dollars per shelter bed. Um, you know, these sh- a lot of these shelters are multi million dollar facilities, but if you look at a shelter, if you visit a shelter, if you talk to anyone who's lived in one, they are not really seeing the benefit of that money. Mm -hmm. And if you think about how insane it is that a shelter bed would be costing the government $3,500 when like the average rent, I mean, like, you know what I mean? You could, you could, you could house someone in a pretty nice apartment in a pretty nice area for 3,500 a month, Mm -hmm. you know? But so, but this is the issue with the bureaucracy and, um, the the way that money sort of just falls through the system in this very very ineffectual way so kind of uh, around these points i'm curious if you can talk to us just a little bit about um you know what other people might not see uh that's going on in these dynamics if they're just you know watching the news or or sort of hearing kind of high level reports from from ngos and the like um are there things that you saw there that you were kind of surprised by or that you feel like folks should should hear about Absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing that I really, really want to make clear, and this is not something that I fully understood. Well, actually, let me let me take a step back. Mm -hmm. I would say that there's a lot of things that I think really basic things that I did not realize before I started doing this work. I mentioned to you uh, about this briefly, you know, before we spoke, Gavin, but like when I moved to New York as a college student, I would walk around the city and I was at first really disturbed when I saw homelessness Uh When I saw people who were in crisis and, you know, either clearly having substance, substance abuse crisis or mental health crisis or simply street homeless living in really, really bad circumstances. But over time, 
I became really desensitized to it. Right. And I started to accept the presence of unhoused individuals in crisis on the street as almost part of the topography of the urban landscape. And it's, it, it's, it hurts me to admit that, but I think it's important to admit it. Right. And in doing this work, I have really started to see the individuals in the folks that I encounter who are in crisis as I'm walking down the street. My level of fear around these individuals has completely diminished hmm. because you realize that there is so much misleading information around who is homeless, why people are homeless, and what homeless people, quote unquote, are like capable of. And when you really start to get to know people who are facing housing housing precarity or who have been unhoused or, you know, what have you, it really starts to humanize that experience in a way that makes it really, that, that resensitizes you to the issue, right? So I think that one of our, like, what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to resensitize people to seeing the problem as a problem that can be fixed. And we are operating from the position that we that every that it is possible for everyone to have stable housing. It is possible for everyone to have f affordable housing. It might take a long time, but we believe that that is possible. And I think that's something that I think is really important pe for people to know that this is a problem that we created. And this is a problem that everyone can participate in solving in really big ways or really small ways. Another thing I want to say that I, I didn't really appreciate before I started doing this work was that the shelter system is really, really bad. Hmm. Like when I before I started doing this work and starting and starting to talk to folks who'd been in shelter, I thought, you know, I, I figured, you know, actually, you know, I had worked at a shelter briefly, um, but I had worked at a family shelter. I volunteered there and I did like an, I ran an after school program for kids there. And that was my, that was my experience with a shelter. And I was like, it wasn't great, but it, it did not seem that bad. What I came to realize is that one, family shelters and shelters that have any sort of relationship to children are so, 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 so much better than any other shelter because as a society we have uh we have sort of a conscious around children right we are like yeah. children can't be in these dire straits so if anything's involving children then you know it's not going to be as bad as single adult shelters and i've even talked to people who were raised through the shelter system and they talk and they speak about the experience of being in shelter as a kid and it being really tough but it not being as as crazy and horrible as what they experienced when they reached eight, being 18 and then they were age in the single adult shelters and even they yes and when they age out and then they're in the adult shelters and they're just dealing with horror upon horror i'm just going to paint a quick picture for you mm. if you're in shelter in new york city you are in a room with like i said between eight and like 50 people you are normally dealing with a bathroom that's like four showers to like 50 to 100 people. It's usually no hot water. It's like only cold water. You might have one microwave for 60 people. You have to wake up at like, you know, really early in the morning, like between six and 9 a.m. And you're not allowed to be in the shelter between the hours of like early morning to 5 p.m. Why? Hmm. Because 
if you're in shelter, you should be out there trying to get learn how, you know, try to get a job. But tell me this, all of the resources that and all of the people whose job it is to help you get a job are at the shelter. So during this time when you're supposed to be working, you're actually being kept away from the people who can actually get you a job. And so when you understand that dynamic, you start to see like, wow, how are we expecting people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps? Mm-hmm. We have we have resources for them, but then we are denying them access to the resources that would allow them to rise out of the cycle of, of being unhoused. And then the last thing I would want to say is that I have really realized that in the U.S., all of our institutions, including institutions around unhoused folks, are carceral in nature. And what do I mean by carceral? I mean that carceral systems, you know, most obvious example is in the prison system and the prison industrial complex in the U.S., but it's baked into every sort of larger institution in the U.S. And what it does is it's, you know, a carceral system is there to enact control. And if folks do not abide by the rules of that system, then they are either punished or excluded. The, and, uh, the way I've thought about dynamics in this sometimes is at what point in time does somebody with a gun come to your door, right? Or exactly. in this case, your tent, but yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's, a, it's like, at, at what point do you cease to become entitled to basic rights in the eyes of the system mm. or of the government? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like in carceral systems, you're uh, you're normally assigned a number, you know, you're and you're associated by that number. And we see this play out in sh- the shelter system so strongly. And, and in fact, when you talk to a lot of people who have been in shelter, they say that it feels like you're in jail. And, fo- and you know, folks, who, a lot of folks have been in jail, so they know like sure. it's just, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it feels like jail. And so then you have to ask yourself, like, why are we treating one of our most vulnerable populations the the population that is that perhaps in many ways is like in most of need of care support like legitimate compassion why are we treating folks in this situation like prisoners why are we treating them like they have committed a crime when perhaps their only crime like the lady you know the example i gave earlier is that they got hurt and couldn't go to work and then were were late on their lease. Like, is that a crime in America? I don't know. So that's the things I want to say is like the shelter system is hell and it should not exist. And that we have to have compassion and like really get to know the stories of folks who are facing with this issue to be able to understand how to appropriately address it. And the last, actually, I have one more thing. Please. The, another thing that I that I've noticed in this work is that the folks who are affected by being like unhoused people are the ones who have the best ideas around how to get them housing. Mm. And the paternalistic, uh, you know, model of government or of NGO involvement, it's not effective. Coming in and trying to like tell people wh- how they're going to like how they need to help themselves. Like that's not effective. But if you talk to folks, you find out that there are very simple things that they need to get stabilized. Mm. You know, there are very simple ways in which, like, for instance, being able to have one caseworker, being able to have some consistency in the person who's handling your case so that you can get a voucher, so that you can start searching for apartments, so you can get stabilized. These are all really, really basic things. Oh, 
another one having wi-fi in the shelter uh, most yeah. shelters don't have wi-fi so then you know someone who is dealing with so much chaos and so much you know challenge in their life has to go try to find a place where they'll let them use the wi-fi that makes sense i don't know how many people have told me that after staying in shelter that they have either decided to be street street homeless or have seriously considered being street homeless because it's actually easier and less stressful than being in shelter. That makes no sense. Yeah, that's tough. That is. Well, you know, one of the things that I did, um, producer Nick is always good at, uh, at prodding me to ask some some of the harder questions, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is, you know, you ha- you find people who right, uh, will agree with a lot of this in theory, right? And they might even donate to a lot of these NGOs mm-hmm. um, and, and care about this issue. And then when there's somebody on their doorstep who's, you know, scaring them or scaring their kids or they feel like, you know, maybe there's needles being left around or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the situation changes for them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know I've been there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how would you, you know, if somebody has a situation where they, you know, they care a lot about this, but they're feeling like they're, you know, scared. Somebody's, you know, sleeping on their doorstep every night, these kinds of things. How would you suggest that they, you know, interact with that situation or, or, or that person? Absolutely. And, you know, listen, I, I understand that we're, we're speaking on a level that, you know, it, it, the conversation changes when you are thinking about your own space, right. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking about your own, safety. But there are a couple of ways I want to think about this question. Yeah. The first the first thing is I would say if someone's in that scenario, you need to really think about where the fear is coming from. Is this fear coming from stigma around drug users? Is it coming from stigma around unhoused people? Because the fact of the matter is like if you look at the statistics in New York for example, you're way more likely to get mugged, stabbed, attacked, or otherwise harmed by a housed person than you are an unhoused person. Mm, <laughs> that's just the that's just the case. Like unhoused folks in general are not the ones who are like like from my awareness and from the the statistics I've seen are not necessarily like the ones who are going out and mugging people whatever. Anyway, so I would say that you'd have to ask yourself like where is this fear coming from and like and, and, and this is not an easy thing to do, but it's something that I've had to do. Like, you have to really ask yourself, like, how much of this is stigma? Mm. Like, and, and it's important to ask that question, right? Because if you are operating from a place of being able to differ- differentiate between fear coming from stigma and stereotypes and fear that's coming from the reality of the scenario that you're reacting to, you can actually make a better choice. So that's not just about like humanizing people. It's also about making a better choice. So that's the first thing I would say. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is do everything you can to um, help fix the situation um, without involving law enforcement. Because unless, you know, whatever, if someone, obviously, if someone is threatening you or threatening your family in a way where you fear for your, you know, well-being, Mm -hmm. then you have to make the choice that you feel you need to make in order to secure yourself and secure your family. I'm never going to tell someone not to do that. But a lot of times, like, I think in this country, we have a, a big crisis in terms of like how social welfare duties are handled. We ask police officers to be social workers, to, you know, 
uphold laws, to intervene in violent situations, to help people who have substance abuse. They're asked to do too much. And oftentimes because of that sort of the, the breadth, the impossible breadth of the level of the of the number of types of duties they have to do. If you if your aim is to help that person in addition to making yourself feel safe, like getting law enforcement involved is not the best option. So I would say use mutual aid in this scenario. Go to your community members. Ask them like, hey, what can we do about this together? Hmm. Can we come up with a solution together that both honors the humanity of this person that we might feel a little bit scared of, but who also is a human that has complexity, who might have substance abuse complexity, who might have mental health complexity, and really just needs help and support. Now, I'm not saying that you offer the person a room in their in your house. I'm not saying that you uh, have to like be a bleeding heart person. You know what I mean? Sure. And like go out of your way to to help change this person's life. But I think that oftentimes like the reason why people react with fear is because they also don't feel supported. Mm, so I, I think see. the more that we can lean on our community and go to our neighbors and say, Hey y'all, like, how can we address this issue together? Like, what do you think we can do to try and um, make this right? And also I think that like, this is not going to be a, like, I don't think anyone's going to like this answer, but I'm going to be honest with you. Like most of the time, when people are now I live in New York, so it's different, mm -hmm. you know, like I, we don't have like a porch, so I can't, I don't really have the, you know, the same sort of proprietary energy around my stoop of my apartment building. Yeah. But in New York city, like last summer, especially when there were a lot of encampments in the upper West side, people were really mad um, that folks were camping out uh, outside of their homes or in the upper West side in general. And it brought up some really interesting questions around like the optics uh, of income disparity, right? And I think that, you know, you got to kind of ask yourself, like, is this person really a threat? Mm. Or is this person occupying space in proximity to me in a way that reminds me of uncomfortable truths around how unequal living in this country is? Because I think a lot of people mistake discomfort with being around unhoused folk with actual danger. And I know that things that are different sense. other places. Um, I'm speaking specifically from my experience in New York. But I think that a lot, of, but, but I think in that case, those would be my recommendations to both ask yourself where the fear is coming from, check in with yourself, make sure you're not operating from, you know, a position of, in, of, in, of intense bias and stigma, and then look to the community and, and ask your neighbors and ask the people around you, like, let's try to come together to both be really respectful of this person's humanity, but also make sure that we feel safe in our community. That makes sense. As you're saying, and also yeah. you can reach, sorry, and the last thing I'll say is that re, you can reach out to mutual aid groups in your area mm -hmm. who might be working around this subject area and can provide that individual with another option Yeah, who can provide that individual with like, uh, you know, no, knowing where other encampments are or helping that person get placed in supportive housing or helping that person just be able to make a different choice than the choice that's causing you discomfort. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of ways to approach it. I appreciate that. Yeah. And just, you know, one of the things that that was making me reflect on as you were saying that was uh, there's this uh, stoic concept of uh, kind of think you have been harmed and you have been harmed. Uh, 
mm. or, or kind of like the more that you, you feel that, um, uh, I have been harmed. This is an injustice. Uh, the more that it actually hurts you. And, um, I think that is one of the things that drives that emotion is that I have been harmed, right? You are taking my space. You are causing more issues for me or whatever. Right. Um, but the very act of looking at it through that frame may be uh, both not helpful <laughs> and uh, just causing more stress for the individual who's who's worried about this person in their presence. Um, and as you said, if you take a little bit of a wider uh, view on it, you can see that it's not necessarily this person trying to harm you, but you know just the failure of uh, different dynamics going on in our society. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to know that I, I just think that there is just so much stigma and fear around unhoused folks. Mm. Like we, you know, you're I don't know, like there's just as people feel like they're you know going to get attacked or going to get stolen from or someone's going to just break into their home. And obviously there are folks who do that, you know, like there are there are obviously folks that do that. But I would say the vast majority of the unhoused folks that I've met that I've worked with, that I've been encountering, you know, the main thing that they're concerned with is stabilizing and getting housing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, awesome. So, you know, I'm curious just to, to touch, you know, come back a, lot, a little bit around to the different uh, projects that you guys have in this area. So, Absolutely. Um, I think we might have touched on this a little bit. Maybe you can, you can talk us through the media project uh, and then, uh, you know, just some of the other aspects of what you guys have been doing. Yes, with pleasure. So um, we have a few different projects working with Home as a Human Right. The one that I am kind of more in a leader posi leadership position with is the media project. So the media project aims to do some of the work that I've been speaking about around humanizing the narratives uh, around unhoused folks and their stories. So we document certain you know some of our service projects we um we document um movements uh you know we 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 document moments in the housing rights movement and leaders and actions that that we attend but we also uh really like to just uh speak with folks who have either been unhoused are currently unhoused or are in the process of seeking housing to learn more about their stories and what life is like for them. Mm. Because one of the things that we are really interested in doing is offering this humanizing narrative and also sh giving people the context to be able to have compassion for folks who are going through this. And I think that compassion is really the gateway to people getting energized to actually get involved. You know, when you see that, that, it's almost arbitrary. It's like kind of the birth lottery of like who you're born to and like what kind of economic circumstances you're born into or like if you're lucky enough not to have like a major injury and then have crazy medical bills and then not be able to afford your rent. Yeah. When you see that it's like this sort of chance game that some people are stably housed and some people aren't, it kind of makes you feel like you want to be part of making other making sure other people have housing, right? So- that's kind of the aim of the uh, the media project. Mm -hmm. And then we also have moving support, which I briefly mm -hmm. mentioned, yeah. where when folks finally, you know, get their stable housing, we help source furniture, appliances, household goods for them to try to ease the transition and make sure that 
they're not moving into an empty apartment, that they actually are uh, in comfort. Um, there's also the pitch deck, and that That's is great, yeah. a project that was spearheaded by Meryl, who's one of the members of our group. And she was working in cooperation with brokers, housing brokers, um, real estate agents, unhoused folks, voucher holders, a whole sort of coalition of people at various um, sort of stages of the housing sort of search um, process. And this project's main aim is to try to destigmatize voucher holders for landlords so that they will be more amenable to accepting folks who are holding vouchers to live in their buildings. Now, why is this necessary? It's necessary because most voucher holders are or have been unhoused, which because of like the level of bias I've talked about and the level of stigma I've, talk I've talked about, landlords are afraid that if they, you know, rent to a voucher holder, that that person might be untrustworthy, that they might, you know, negatively impact the property in some way, which is obviously pure prejudice, hmm. but that's what's going on. And so Meryl and her team got together to create this pitch deck to try and ex to both destigmatize homeless uh, uh, unhoused folks and also to explain why there's economic incentives for folks to actually accept voucher clients especially you know about a year and a half ago when the real estate market was really really tanking in new york because of people just moving out in droves so um that was that um and then the last project is the housing search support group. And what this group does is it works with folks who are either trying to get a voucher or they currently are holding vouchers and it basically helps them um, find apartments. So like I said, like folks who have vouchers are facing a lot of discrimination. So one of the things that the um, uh, housing search support teammates will do. So actually let me uh, rewind a little bit. So each person, like there's, there's the recipient of the sort of support and then there's the support person and they are working in a kind of buddy system. And you, and the person who is offering the support is usually a stably housed person. So for instance, if that, if their voucher holder, their buddy is, trying to see an apartment in a certain building and they contact the landlord or they contact the broker or the real estate agent and the the person keeps on dodging them yeah now we see that and we are like that might be a case of source of income discrimination right because you see that that person has a voucher you just don't even want to show them the space so then in that case the um the voucher the like that person's buddy will call up the same landlord and be like, hey, can I come see the apartment? <laughs> now, if the landlord immediately says yes and is like, oh, yeah, come on, like uh, you can come see it, then we yeah. know that that's source of income discrimination and we can present that to them. We can be like, actually, like what you're doing is against the law and you would really be in your best interest to just let this person come see the apartment. So that the, the, and then also, you know, it could just be like, cause like I said, when you're, you're in between houses or you're in shelter or you're on the street, it's really hard to like, it's not as easy to just look up street easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not sure. as easy to just go on Zillow and like yeah, look yeah, at yeah. listings. So also the housing search support buddy can do that. They can like look at, you know, look through housing listings and give some, you know, good options for the person. Yeah. It's basically just helping like, 
uh, the person who is stably housed uses the energy and the resources they have access to to help ease the process for someone who's already dealing with a lot of um, instability in their housing search. That's great. But those are the those are the main projects that we're we're doing at the moment. Yeah, and I think that that you know I just I, I think we said it before, but just coming back to that whole like offering people your like just organizational capacity, right? The ability to like not have a bunch of emotion wrapped up in the problem. Uh, and just help just do that basic kind of, you know, I don't know, a, a, you know, as one would kind of organize a project in their own life, but, but for another. Um, Absolutely. It's yeah. incredibly, it's incredibly meaningful. I mean, you, we take, like I said, it's really hard as a stably housed person to appreciate these little, nece- these little necessaries that go into um, finding housing or just operating day to day. You know, so yeah. like even just making a call to a landlord, doing a search on on one of the um, the sort of housing listing websites, these things are actually kind of hard to do when you're unhoused. So that's why I'm saying like the cool thing about this group and the cool thing about mutual aid in general is that everyone can contribute to their level of um, involvement. And so there are folks who are in our group who will do a move once a month and they'll just help move furniture and that's how they're contributing. Or there's folks who are called to be a um, housing support buddy and they'll get paired up with someone. And then that's like two, uh, maybe two hours a week. Or there's like folks who like me who are more, you know, have media and um, sort of filmmaking experience. And so we go out and interview people and make videos and make social media content. Um, and then there are people who are more on the organizational side, who are going to actions, who are talking to folks from um, groups that we trust and talking to folks who are on the ground. And like, like, and, and one thing I should mention is that every project that I just listed was not something that we came up with. Mm. These were all asks from advocacy groups and partner organization that came to that when we came to them and said, Hey, what do the folks that are in your group need help with? Mm. They said, well, this. And so we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. We are literally just responding to the needs that are lit, that are sort of flagged by folks who know more about the problem than we do. That's great. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, and I, you know, there's a few things there that you said that uh, that were pretty interesting. I mean, you know, that whole secret shopper thing. I feel like there's a long history of that being yeah. successful, right? I think they, they did that with like international, or I'm sorry, uh, interracial couples back in the day mm-hmm. as the same situation. And yeah, it's interesting to see people. It's sad you have to continue to do that, but I'm I'm glad folks are helping out that way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, yeah, you know, I was curious just on the on the the pitch decks, the, um, uh, here's why you should have, uh, you know, here's why you should be helping, you know, house folks with vouchers. Uh, was there particular arguments that seem to work the best? Is it just kind of like showing statistics or like, like, what do you feel like is, is, is most effective in those pitches? So I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, we encountered a lot of resistance. Um, I mean, and one thing that we realized that was really fruitful coming out of that pro- process was that there need that really the key to all of this and to making vouchers be actually like useful resources for folks is there needs to be more communication between folks on the government side, folks on the brokerage and real estate side, landlords, and folks who are trying to live 
in these buildings. Mm -hmm. That they, these steps are so separated from each other that they don't really, they don't, there's no like cross pollination happening. Mm. So yes, we would present this to landlords or we would present this to brokers and stuff like that. And they would come to us and they would have some very like legitimate concerns. One, sometimes the government doesn't pay on time mm. and that's kind of like well known. So what do you do about that? then it would be useful if there was a meeting between landlords and members of, you know, like the New York State Housing Authority and stuff like that, like NYCHA or HPD, and having these conversations and being like, okay, like, how do we make this system more effective? And how do we make this system more efficient? So that was really what came out of that. And it's still an in-process um it's still an in-process thing of like figuring out what language is most effective. But quite frankly, the the most effective thing that we've been that we've both observed and also that we have been sort of advised to do by folks who are like in the legal sphere and stuff yep. is really just talking about the fact that source of income um, <laughs> discrimination is just illegal. And so that's yeah. like that's 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 the most compelling argument is to just to say like look. Like, we know that y'all have stigmas against these people. Like, we know that, you know, you're, you have fear. But at the end of the day, if it's proven that you are discriminating people on this basis, like, it's going to cause a lot more trouble that, for you than it would be for you to give someone a chance. Um, so <laughs> it's not the most uplifting hey. argument, <laughs> but that has been one of the more useful uh, tactics. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even actually know that that was the case. So, you know, I, I feel like that's an effective thing to share. Uh, you well, know, quite frankly, I, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's now, now I want to be clear. Yeah. It's, it's just source, it's, it's source of income discrimination if they don't allow the person to see the space. I see. Okay. Getting them, getting them to then, um, allow the person to live in the space is a whole nother, mm. uh, issue, which is, I got to witness a um, real estate agent who does who works with a lot of voucher clients, and I think was a voucher client one point himself. His name's Paris, and he's huh. incredible. Huh. And he had a lot of really cool ways of um, of trying to get voucher clients in buildings. Like he would, one thing he would do was he would email the CEO of the development company mm. or of the like real estate company, and he would make a paper trail like. Uh, you're not allowing people to see, you're not allowing voucher clients to see your pro properties. Why is this? I'm contacting you. Why is this? And they, and in order to just shut him up and not have to deal <laughs> with any potential legal fallout, they would like house people. Yeah. So it it's, it's really like, you got to get creative with it. You know, that's good. That's good. I'm glad mm -hmm. folks are fighting that fight. Yeah, yeah. I, he's incredible. Nice. Well, this is, uh, this is great. I, um, you know, I'm going to ask you a little bit about how folks can help. But before we do that, is there any other topics that you would love for us to cover today? Let me think. Mm. I mean, I think it would be, no, I think we hit pretty much everything. Great. Well, we... <laughs> yeah, that feels good <laughs> to me. Awesome. So now the question becomes putting it into practice. So um, mm. if folks, you know, either want to help out with, um, uh, sorry, it's housing is a human right. Is that right? Home is a human oh, home right. Is a human right. Uh, if people either want to help out uh, directly with that, or if they were kind of inspired to, um, you know, do something similar in their own neighborhood, 
what kind of advice would you give them? Absolutely. So I think, you know, you can check out, check us out at homeisahumanright.com. If you want to get involved in um, our project, mm -hmm. we also are on um, Instagram as home human right. And I believe Twitter is the same and we are going to be branching out to TikTok soon. So nice. <laughs> um, I'm sure we'll be home human right on there too. But um, if you want to get involved in mutual aid, they're really like our, I think in most uh metropolitan areas there are mutual aid groups and so you can check out facebook you can check on it out instagram or just do a google search and look up you know mutual aid and the name of your neighborhood mm -hmm. and i'm sure you can start getting involved and if it's not if there's not one in your neighborhood you can at least start attending meetings at one that's like closer to you and learn how they're structured, get some relationships in the space and start your own mutual aid group. I mean, there is, as long as you're operating from a place of solidarity, yeah. being the primary tenant of you, of, of the group. Can you define that for us? Uh, Cause I feel like that term gets- Solidarity? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, solidarity for me, I'll just give yeah, a please. personal yeah. definition. Um, solidarity means, uh, that there is not a separation between the person that is the recipient of the aid and the person who is perhaps administering that aid. It's the acknowledgement that um, we are all responsible for the health, safety, and well-being of all members of our community, regardless of whether those members are, you know, part of a specific identity group that we might identify with right yeah. and obviously there's there is solidarity around identity groups but i think as it manifest you know as as we're speaking about in the mutual aid space it's a, it casts a wider net where it's like the neighborhood it's like a discrete geographical you know area and so like for us we're really focused on new york city like mm -hmm. home is a human right is a new york city based thing we are we have people in all five boroughs but we are a new york city based thing so we stand in solidarity with all New Yorkers, <laughs> yeah. like housed and unhoused. We are standing in solidarity with, with them to try and create a more equitable housing system and to redress some of the historical and social inequalities that have given rise to the housing crisis as we observe it now. It's a kind of arm so, yeah, and arm. I think on, yeah. on a basic level, solidarity it means it's not top down. It's not, um, you know, it's not like I'm gonna give. It's not transactional. It's it's about standing, in, uh, yeah, standing mm -hmm. side to side with someone and acknowledging that whatever's affecting you is also affecting me. We are an interconnected community, and we are, and that your well-being is also That's my well-being. And so I, I, I interrupted. You were saying kind of as long as you're doing it with the spirit of solidarity. Yeah, so I would say if someone's starting a mutual aid group, definitely go and check out other mutual aid groups in your local area. But the main, but the main tenet should just be solidarity and community. And if you're operating from that space, like I think a lot of other stuff will figure itself out. Well, that's great. I appreciate that. Well, we'll make sure that we drop links to all of these uh, uh, great initiatives. And uh, I just want to thank you again for being here today, Gabby. It's been a pleasure to. Uh, to learn a little bit here and have some more hope for fixing some of these problems going forward. So thank you so much. I love talking about this stuff. I hope I wasn't too angry, but I tried to keep, I tried to keep a lid on it, but this was, yeah, this was really, 
a treat and it means a, like it's it's some of the most meaningful and hum it, it, doing this work makes me feel more human. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. You know. So so it's nice to speak about it. Well, on that note, I hope you have a great day and take care everybody. All right.